This is the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Tom Church, and the Libertarian is Professor Richard Epstein. Richard is the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow here at the Hoover Institution. He's the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU, and he's a senior lecturer at the University of Chicago. And it's October, which means a new slate of cases will be heard by the Supreme Court. And since we have here the Supreme Court Justice who should have been, I think we have a great opportunity to get a rundown of several important cases. Richard, I got to ask before we dive into this, if you had to give one guess why you were never nominated for the court, what, what would it be? Well, I think I would say as follows. I don't think that I would get anybody in any administration to put my name forward as a potential <laughs> Supreme Court nominee. And if it were put forward, I don't think I'd get anybody from any party um, to support it. And let me explain because it's kind of instructive why. Um, I am, generally speaking, a, a kind of a maverick, so you can't fit yourself comfortably into either camp. And in order to get something like a Supreme Court nominee, there have to be some people who prepared to back you because they agree with what you say. So just to give you but one constant image is what do you think about originalism? Are you for it or are you against it? And it turns out that I'm both. That is, to some extent, there are cases like the Commerce Clause stuff where uh, the textual commitments, I think, are sufficiently strong and the structural elements are sufficiently clear uh, that you really want to keep yourself back to the kind of nineteen pre-1937 version of the document. That already means that you're four square against the New Deal. And so there are going to be lots of people who are going to be ferocious. Interestingly enough, uh, when it comes to the originalists, they don't want to go back either. What they are is they're selective originalists. When they see something that happens under, say, um, the Warren Court or some more modern development, then they'll say, well, this is a departure from earlier precedent. But there's a long series of cases, starting some of them in 1937, some of them going back to Marbury and Madison and so forth, where they they would regard it as utterly foolish to open these cases up. And so what happens is I am essentially not an originalist when it comes to uh, judicial innovations that I think work pretty well, that have stood the test of time. Uh, the purists will not like that. On the other hand, the American progressives will not like my position either, because even though I'm prepared to say that the prescription goes, I'm not prepared to extend the scope of these kinds of documents further than past practices have it. So you're sitting there without any friends. And the second point, just to mention one, is uh, there is the great debate over judicial restraint and judicial activism, uh, which was more current, I would say, 30 years ago than today. And on, on that particular situation, uh, the conservatives constantly believed that you should be a believer in judicial restraint. And my view always was that there are very broad clauses, you give them very broad interpretation, and that judicial restraint is only a construction aid, it is certainly not an excuse for doing it. And when I did all that stuff. Essentially, I became very aggressive in my 1985 book on the takings clause. And it's very clear to me that you could not get many of the Federalists, let alone any of the New Dealers, uh, to join that particular position. So um, my name was actually mentioned, I don't know if you knew this, Tom, on the front cover of Policy Review, which was the Heritage Society magazine in January of 1984. There were two other people on that cover you never heard of, Nino Scalia and Robert Bork, who were <laughs> there. And then there was a man named Joe Ball who was a religion expert who was about 75 at the time, two of us faded into oblivion. But before that happened, I was invited down to the Heritage Foundation to talk to them about my so-called non-candidacy. And I got into one of these huge fights with somebody there over the question of did we believe in judicial restraints or not. And this was just before I wrote my takings book, so I was loaded for bear. And I remember going home saying, ah, 
This did not go so well. Will I get my car fare reimbursed? I never thought that I would ever get any support. So um, it is very nice to know that you're never going to be tempted with a Supreme Court or any other federal nomination because you then don't have to temper your sales in order to please somebody whom you hope to extract a favor for some from, from some later date. So it is very nice to be completely liberated from the uh, prospect of getting public office. It means that you actually have a greater chance of engaging in some form of intellectual candor. Well, let's talk about uh, this ability to say what you think, because many people have been criticizing the Supreme Court for being well, not just partisan, but maybe even political. In fact, several of the justices have given talks recently bemoaning the, the attitudes that people have towards the Supreme Court. I think many people think that they will just vote always on partisan lines, which, of course, isn't true. There's also been criticism of, of the shadow docket, the use of it, where the Supreme Court doesn't hear an oral argument but still makes an emergency order or some quick decision. Uh, do you think the court has has strayed too far outside of its lane? Do you are you worried about the it becoming political in nature? Well, I'm worried about it, but the question is which direction is is not an easy one. Are they going to become too far to the left, too far to the right? It depends who does it. Uh, if you recall, there was a huge amount of this kind of discussion that took place during the Warren Court between 1954 and 1965. And there were many, many people who said that this liberal court is not only going to give us a case like Brown v. Board of Education, but it's going to revolutionize criminal procedure uh, with cases like Miranda and Miranda warnings and so forth, Madfee, Ohio, dealing with uh, searches and seizures, reapportionment taking place through Baker and Carr. And there were some very, very powerful attacks on that particular court. And we kind of worked through it and did it. Today, they tend to be coming on the conservative side. But the ironic situation is the deviations from previous doctrine that you had under the Warren Court were much more substantial, in my view, than some of the disagreements that you start to have today about the scope of these very doctrine. So, uh, for example, if somebody's going to say you're departing from previous president when you're taking up Roe v. Wade, uh, what was the situation back in 1972 and 1973 when this thing was being prepared? By that time, Tom, I was already an academic uh, teaching uh, first at the University of Southern California, then at the University of Chicago. And I could remember the sort of general consensus is why is anybody actually worrying seriously about this particular case? Everybody, but everybody in his uncle knows that abortion is simply a state law issue. Why are you even doing this? And then, of course, what happened is uh, Harry Dropman Blackman dropped his bomb, and all of a sudden it became a federal case. The shift from pre-row to row is much more dramatic than anything that is going to take place now, and we kind of fought our way through it. But uh, one of the interesting things about it is there was never any sense that those people who lost in Roe v. Wade thought that the decision was legitimate or that they could live with it. So this was very different from the situation, also a real shocker at the time of Griswold against Connecticut, where it was held that there was a constitutional right for married people to use contraceptives. And then all of a sudden the marriage dropped out of it and it just became the use of contraceptives. That was easily accepted because most states had already legalized contraceptives anyhow, and it was only Connecticut as a lone holdout. But when you got to Roe, it was completely different. And the tumult at the time was much greater than it is now. And, and indeed, I think to some extent, the whole thing today is a little bit overstated. The New York State Legislature sort of made its hand clear. They said, we will pass a statute. And I think they've done it, which says if Roe is overruled, we will now make it a statutory 
right, that essentially in New York you have all the rights that you had under Roe v. Wade and all the limitations that were available under Roe v. Wade. Um, so I do think this was much more dramatic. Uh, at this point, all the complaints come from the left, and I think they're a little bit over. I mean, it turns out there are kind of three blocks on the Supreme Court. Uh, There's so-called the hard right, but they're not quite hard right. The Gorsuch, Thomas, and Alito. And then they're the so-called centrists, each with their own differences, Barrett, Kavanaugh, and Roberts. And then you have the three on the left, sort of Mayor, Kagan, and Breyer. Uh, You can reminisce and refine each of them. But, you know, the middle block kind of goes both ways on some of these things. So it's certainly not what you would call a, a hard left revolution. Uh, there will be some cases, I think, in which you're going to see the six and the three uh, be on the conservative side. Uh, the biggest one is abortion by far. But I can't see anything in the DACA that we've had so far to date, uh, which would give rise to the kinds of really loud cries on this. Now, you mentioned something about the shadow docket. There's a very interesting point, and it's not just the Supreme Court. Every single court in the land uh, uses a, a system in which there are simply orders that are given, no explanation. And sometimes they're really important, denying amicus briefs, uh, allowing a shift in judge at the request of one party or another, uh, basically saying that we're going to schedule oral argument at disadvantageous terms or whatever. Uh, you can't run a court without that kind of system. And what happens is you always are going to find the case that there will be something on that shadow docket, uh, which you think really is much more important and should get yourself a full hearing. But there's really no mechanism for you to do it. If it's a district court that does it, generally speaking, these orders are not appealable. And if you try to do something, what's going to happen is it's just going to get blown up. At the Supreme Court level, it's exactly the same thing. What happens is if you want to be really hostile to a court, every time it does something through the shadow docket or through an opinion without oral argument, you could raise some sort of denunciation. My own view is sort of one of of resignation. I don't like what happens on the shadow docket in some time, but unless I could think of an institutional reform that makes sense, which I cannot, given the huge press of business on these various courts, what I would do is essentially not make the strong institutional challenge that something is deeply wrong, but would voice my dissent in an individual case if I thought the matter was worthy enough to require full oral argument. So I am not going to go four square into that. And I'm certainly not going to say, oh, we have a shadow docket problem. Let's add four more Supreme Court judges so we could be seven, six Democratic instead of, quote unquote, six, three Republican. That, I think, is simply taking an issue which is some salience and elevating it to a point where it bears no relationship to the impact that it has in reality. Do not want to make major changes in the composition of the Supreme Court to deal with the shadow docket question. Well, let's get into some cases here because there's a handful of really interesting ones to talk about. We have a Second Amendment case. It's called New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin. And this case hinges on New York's requirement that to get a concealed carry license, you have to demonstrate a special need for self-protection distinguishable from the general community. In other words, you can't just get a concealed carry license because you want one. You have to demonstrate a a proper uh, cause for it. And courts have weighed in on what constitutes a proper cause. Um, can you take us through, you know, where we sit on, on gun rights, uh, where, where you come down on this one, and, and maybe give us some background on Heller for, for where we're starting from? Okay, look, I mean, the gun rights situation has now gone so far off the rails in 
many ways that it's very difficult to make sense of it. Let's go back to the Hellas situation. Um, this is a case that was decided in 2008, and there was a police officer, retired, I believe it was, who wanted to be able to have a gun and keep it in his own house. And what he did is he raised the Second Amendment kind of issue, um, dealing with the question that talking about the security of a free state is necessary for the republic, and therefore you have the right to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Uh, the first thing that one starts to look at at the amendment is why is it that it applies at all to the District of Columbia? Uh, my view is Justice Scalia was dead wrong on that question. The uh, point about the militia in the Second Amendment is that you wanted to make sure that the states had the free power to deal with uh, the organization of their militia. There's no militia issue in the District of Columbia, so it turns out that you do not have to worry about the application of the Second Amendment. And I think that's actually the correct answer. That's not the answer that he gave. What he did is he treated the first half of that amendment as being surplusage and then just worried about the question about the right to keep and to bear arms. And once he did that, the the question he said is, what's the standard of review that we're going to bring to these sorts of cases? And essentially, he rejected earlier precedent, all of which says that so long as you could find some sensible, rational, improbable reason to ban guns, you could do it. And he said, we need to have some form of heightened scrutiny. And he found that in the Heller case, you could not meet that. There was then a case called McDonald. And all of a sudden, now what we do is we decide that the um, uh, what shall we call it, the Militia Clause Amendment, the Second Amendment now applies to the state. And again, you have the same police power standards. And so the question then is, what's the heightened scrutiny about? And in my view, I think the New York state is clearly incorrect. What they're doing is they're asking why it is that you can show a special need. I think that's the wrong question to ask under these circumstances. The right question, I think, to ask, is there any reason to believe that a particular person requires a permit is going to present undue danger to the public safety by virtue of the fact that he has one of these things? And that is a question that's completely orthogonal to the one that you see in the case. Um, you, in effect, can have just a plain old ordinary need like all of your other fellow nervous citizen and pose no danger whatsoever to the public at large. And so the requirement that you show a special interest seems to me to be utterly unrelated to the question of whether or not under these circumstances there's some danger to the public safety by carrying this particular weapon in public. And the court never really addresses those sorts of things. What's very, very clear coming out of the Second Circuit and um, out of New York City is there's a very strong anti-gun sentiment there. And what happens is they're trying to make sure that they can keep the old sentiment alive after the heightened scrutiny standard that was put into place in Heller. The Supreme Court, I believe, has not taken a case on this issue since Heller itself on the actual substantive standard, McDonald only being on the incorporation issue. And I suspect that this will split kind of 6-3. Here, I do believe that there will be a kind of six-member conservative majority, uh, which will be very skeptical about that. Am I 100% sure? Nobody's 100% sure with this or any other Supreme Court. It's quite possible that the libertarian judge Gorsuch may think that the public safety issue is really important and perhaps go on the other side. I rather doubt it. Uh, but what happens is I think that the reason the Supreme Court took this case is because there were at least four justices, and my guess more than that, that think that the entire line of trying to figure out what is a reasonable justification for this is barking up the wrong particular tree. 
public safety is what I think is the correct issue. And if there are huge numbers of people in New York City, all of whom have a general angst about the rising crime level, and they all want to carry weapons, I think that's going to be just fine unless you could show there's something about them uh, which makes them a peculiar hazard. So you really want to switch the burden on these things. Can the state show why it is that a particular person who's asking for a permit is somebody to whom it ought to be denied? Here's another case, and maybe this is a quick one, Carson v. Macon. And the issue here is that the state of Maine isn't allowing state funds that that are set aside for tuition assistance to go to secondary schools that are providing religious instruction. Not necessarily religious in nature, but providing religious instruction. I I thought we'd settled this issue years ago when it came to state-provided funds, vouchers for charter or private schools that were often Catholic in nature. Um, Can you Talk us through this and, and, you know, many people go to the First Amendment, but there's got to be a 14th Amendment uh, 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 issue here as well. Pick an amendment, pick any amendment, I think is what the <laughs> issue is. It, it's, uh, there is the following very different point of view about this. The argument that is typically made in defense of these type of situations is that we do believe in some form of separation between church and state. And so, therefore, if it turns out that the state of Maine is going to give some assistance to religious organizations, what it is doing, in effect, is giving a subsidy to religion, which is inconsistent with the position of neutral that you take. I do not believe that that is the correct argument. I think it's a little bit more complicated than that uh, because it turns out it's not just a question of secular individuals who are opposed to religious aid being the only taxpayers. There are also taxpayers who, in fact, strongly support the notion uh, that there ought to be some government support for these institutions that have some religious um, bearing, whether or not it turns out they're full-scale Catholic schools or not. And so the way in which they would put the argument is you got it exactly backwards. What you are now doing is you're taking people who are religious in their orientation and telling them that they could be taxed to support secular schools at the same time that you're telling individuals who are secular in orientation that they need not be taxed in order to support religious schools. So if you look at both the source of the tax funds on the one hand and the distribution of those funds on the other hand, it turns out that if you exclude the religious organizations from this, what's going to happen is you're going to have a subsidy for secular education and a penalty for religious education. So in these particular cases where taxpayers' expenditures are none, uh, the correct argument, I think, is that everybody has to come to the table or nobody comes to the table, and that means, in effect, that this particular statute should come out. The answer that comes back again is, well, you're clearly wrong about all of this because we know that the vast number of people who take uh, these kinds of things do have some religious affiliation. And, and so it's not just a question of giving private schools of all sorts, kinds, and descriptions. Most of it is heavily concentrated on the religious side, to which the answer then comes back. Well, the only reason that's true is because they're signing up for the program. But if you want to sign up for the program, then you would certainly be included and you should understand understand that to the extent that these organizations are now siphoning children off from the public schools, your tax bills to keep the public schools alive are going to be somewhat smaller because you have fewer students to deal with. And so at that particular point, you can't really claim that you've been unfairly benefited 
unfairly prejudiced because whatever you lose to the religious schools, you gain on the tax side. This argument has gone around since a case called Zellman for a very long time. And my own view is if when the time the dust comes to settle, if you're treating this not as a question of separation, but as a question of accommodation and asking whether or not there's a systematic skew by the state in favor of redistribution for one group or another, in the end that you will have to do is to take the inclusive position that once you start giving out public monies, anybody is going to be entitled to apply. That's been the drift of all the earlier cases that we've had in the last several years. And I think generally speaking, in all of these public finance cases, all these public distribution of services cases, uh, the free exercise claim, the anti-redistributives claim is going to take over separation of powers as opposed to accommodation. It looks like we're going to have more accommodations and less separation of powers. So my guess is essentially that the main limitation will be struck down. All right. Last thing here, Richard, I've got to ask. We, we've already discussed Dobbs, the Dobbs uh, case on the show about a month ago. This could be the landmark case that, that reverses Roe v. Wade. But just recently, a federal judge in Texas ordered the state to suspend its its new law banning abortions after six weeks with its, let's call it, very creative enforcement mechanism. This is SB 8. I wanted to follow up. Are there any what are the legal remedies um, that that they we might see in, in Texas? Will this get to the Supreme Court quickly? Uh, you know, how is this going to end up being decided? Nobody really knows. It was an extremely ingenious and, in some say, devilish situation. Uh, it turns out that you are not going to allow state enforcement to take place of this because it runs directly into Roe v. Wade. And so then the question is whether or not you can deputize some private individuals to bring private action in order to stop this. Uh, there are, in fact, the question, are these private or public actors? My view is they turn out to be public actors. And so therefore, they would be subject to the prohibition because they're in effect deputized by the state. Uh, But the other question is, can you actually do this sort of challenge uh, as a facial challenge or do you have to show that there is somebody who's actually in the line of fire? And one of the reasons why this scheme is so fiendish and clever is that there is nobody who's actually doing these kinds of claims to begin with. Uh, But what they do is they have a real chilling effect on the willingness of physicians to give these challenges. And so the constant effort on the part of the federal government and some of the um, pro-abortion groups is to try to get a declaratory judgment in the absence of any harm, and then they run foursquare into the very confused Supreme Court doctrines dealing with whether or not you have standing to stew if it turns out that you're not suffering any special industry. And you noted when we talked about the gun stuff what New York State had said, if you don't have a special need, you can't basically carry a permit. And there's a long, I think, thoroughly misguided doctrine understanding which says, Unless you have a distinct, particular, concrete injury, uh, you don't get standing to challenge a general statute. And that rule goes back to a case called Frothingham and Mellon, which was decided in 1923. I regard it as one of the great constitutional blunders of all time. But so long as that doctrine is there, then the general diffuse anxiety is not going to get you into court. Uh, So what's going to have to happen is you're going to have to have a situation in which somebody is actually sued by one of these people and then challenged is the entire situation. Ironically, if I were somebody who wanted to keep this thing alive as a game, I would never bring suit. Uh, so that you still have the, some interorum effect until this thing gets resolved. In the Dobbs case, I guess it is where the Supreme Court is going to have to ask whether you 
keep Roe v. Wade or kind of limit it in one form or another. Uh, and on that issue, I will just state what I've always thought is that when Roe came down in 1970, think I thought it was made up constitutional law of the worst variety. Um, it doesn't get any better doctrinally because it's been around now for close to 49 years. Uh, but there is a sense in which people get comforted with a doctrine which is relatively stable. And so what happens is you see really strong originalists regarding all this stuff is utterly immaterial. You see people who believe in sort of a living constitution thinking it's utterly decisive. And then you will have all the stories the same way about, A, the slaughter of innocent life that takes place when really bad abortions take place legally. And other people saying what you're doing is you're forcing people into back alleys and we don't want to do that again any more than we've done before. My guess is I don't know which way it will come down. Uh, but I do think that if the originalisms amongst us win, uh, then Roe will be overturned. Uh, there is a narrower position which says, no, we're not going to overturn Roe, uh, but we're going to recognize that so long as what's going on here is after the first trimester, we then have to figure out how on the balancing test uh, this thing fares, and then they will come up with some fairly ad hoc judgment which says either it does or it does not do it. I think the Dobbs case is probably going to be regarded as the biggest case of this particular term, simply because if you go back and you look at Supreme Court confirmation hearing, there are very few issues that command um, attention at the political level. Abortion is number one. Voting rights is probably number two. Affirmative action, stuff like that, is going to be number three. Um, campaign contributions is going to be number four. But you're not going to get anybody worrying about other kinds of cases, like what is going to be the role of the 11th Amendment in sovereign immunity when it comes to the fact that New Jersey, in a case called Murphy, wants to withdraw from the Port Authority Association on the grounds that it's no longer fair for it to have to pay uh, into New York when all the ships come to the deeper waters in New Jersey. Um, these are really wonderful cases, but the political stuff is limited to three or four issues, and the guns, I think, would be one of them, uh, and this would be, I think, another, uh, but everything else, I think, is decidedly second tier, including, interestingly enough, the voucher cases. You've been listening to The Libertarian Podcast with Richard Epstein. Remember, you can read Richard's column, The Libertarian, on defining ideas at hoover.org every week. If you enjoyed this conversation, please rate this show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you tune in. For Richard Epstein, I'm Tom Church. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.